Um, Solo, Pastor Solo, is in Nepal. Uh, It is approximately 7 o'clock in the morning there now. They're going to be doing a series of six conferences over there with Foundations books. So you might keep him in your prayers over the next couple of three weeks. uh, Because he's going to go from the six different places. And he said this one was a six-hour Jeep ride across the mountains to get to this location. And where he is is where that giant earthquake was in 2015. So he's, you know, and he said... It's a big area of spiritual warfare is what he said. So uh, anyway, keep him in your prayers if you think about it the next couple of weeks, and uh, uh, that'll be pretty neat. Also, uh, Ralph LaRose's uh, memorial service will be coming up here in a couple of days, so please keep that in your in your prayers. They're, they're going to uh, give the gospel in two or three different languages and all that, so... <clears throat> Anyway, okay, let's go ahead and get ready. Let's go ahead and take a minute for prayer. Uh, We'll be in Leviticus 3 tonight. Then we'll uh, present ourselves in front of the throne of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love and mercy and grace and all your blessings and all your tests. We just thank you for the opportunity to be able to meet in a free country and open up your word together. I pray you would sanctify this manna to the nourishment of our souls so we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we ask it. Amen. Well, Leviticus chapter 3, and remember chapter 1 is the burnt offering, the olah karban. Karban means offering. Olah means it's one that goes up or ascends. So it is a, a burnt offering. The second chapter 2 is a minka. Carbon. It is a gift offering, and we see that it is an offering of grain because uh, apart from God providing everything that we need, we wouldn't have any grain. So it's part of bringing back to him what he has already provided. And then this chapter 3 is, a, is about the peace offering. This is the Shalom Carbon. So this is a pretty neat, uh, pretty neat offering. We know uh, the word Shalom means peace. Prosperity, it wishes you well. That's what uh, peace is all about. But peace, uh, we're going to get into see what the Bible has to say about peace as we as we move through this. Now, verse one says <clears throat> starts off now if. So again, it's showing the voluntary nature of this offering. So he says if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, a shalom karban. If he is going to offer it out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before, and it literally says, the face of the Lord. I, I love the way this does it, not simply before the Lord, but it's, it's a little more uh, in your face than that, if you will. It uses pane, which is the word for face, and it means before the face of the Lord. So if you're bringing an offering, it's saying that he's looking. And when you bring it, it's for his honor and glory, not yours. It's got a lot of things connotated in that very simple phrase, before the face of the Lord, it is all all to be for him. Now, the peace offering is also voluntary. The other two we looked at are voluntary. And it indicates the importance of the issue of volition. So, 
we were discussing before class how some people think that God gives you the faith to believe. God doesn't give you the faith to believe. He gives you the ability to have faith. What you believe is a decision that you get to make. And that's the way he designed every member of the human race. Every person on this planet walks by faith. The question is, what do they believe in? So to give you the faith to believe in Christ comes from uh, old Calvinist doctrine that goes back into actually the Augustine in the 400s. And so it goes way far back and it basically says you're too depraved to believe. So if you're one of the elect that God foreordained in eternity past, then he's going to make you. He's going to quicken you, make you alive. And then he's going to force you to believe if you don't do it of your own free will. But because he forced you to do it and you still had to decide, then they still call it a volitional decision. See, it's <clears throat> not the way I see the scripture. The word believe, pistuo, and, and its cognates go with that, inherently indicate that the individual has the ability to decide. And by having that, it makes every human being responsible for their decisions, especially about Christ. Romans 1 talks about that, and it says they're without excuse. There's nobody on the planet that has an excuse to not want to believe in God. So that's where, to me, volition is so established. Uh, we know it is the first divine institution. There's a lot of things. He put them in the garden. He made them accountable. There in the garden, he said... You eat of that tree, you're gonna you're gonna die. Okay, the the test is don't eat from that tree. But he gave them the volition to make the decision whether or not to eat from it, and we know what happened after that. Now, unlike the burnt offering, which had to be male, <clears throat> the peace offering could be male or female. And the burnt offering required the strongest and best to picture the requirements for propitiation of the Father. Now, <clears throat> the male of the species, and in, in human beings and everything else, the male of the species is the strongest. It's just designed that way. Uh, you can play all kinds of games with genetics and operations and drugs and everything else, but that's the way it's designed. And it's been shown. I, I love the Girls' World Series, and they just started just about now. But <clears throat> the girls were a series, and I look at it, and they're hitting home runs. And how far are they hitting the ball? 200 feet. It's a 200-foot diamond all the way around. Center field, left field, right field is a 200 feet. Went to the Dodgers game the other night, and the closest fence was 325 feet. Okay? Girls couldn't hit a hard ball, softball, or anything else that far. But men do. There's a difference in... How far they hit a golf ball. There's, oh, I don't want to golf on the golf business right now. But anyway, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a difference in, in strength and design. And when it's talking about propitiation, God says he wants the strongest. He wants the strongest in order to, uh, because it's going to take, uh, as it says, the arm of God. He created the heavens with his fingers, called the finger work of God. But it took the arm of God to provide salvation the peace offering is the manward side of salvation picturing that messiah would not just pay for the sins of men but also of women now <clears throat> in looking at the bible uh, of course people want to attack it and they say it's sexist because it's 
addressing the men as a rule, uh, that's what it does. It uses, um, interestingly enough, it uses uh, masculine anytime one member of a group is male. And one of the biggest examples of that is in Song of Solomon. Because when the first time I went through Song of Solomon and they went back through it to teach it back at a seminary a long time ago in a galaxy far away. But <clears throat> it is, uh, it is uh, the Shulamite woman that was thrown into the harem of Solomon says, Don't look at me because I am swarthy is what it says. And she uses a masculine plural in a harem and you're going why do that that's because the rules of grammar under the hebrews were such that if one male was present in a group of females the masculine was used now uh, was she addressing just the eunuchs that were there to watch over and protect the women I don't know, we're, but were the women looking at her too? I suspect so, because she she was black and the rest were were uh, olive complexion skin. They were totally different uh, races, and so she said, "Stop looking at me." But that's one of the things about the Hebrew grammar that that you have to realize if you're going through it. And <clears throat> this is um, one for men, one for women. Then I I thought when I was going through this. What about all the other genders? <laughs> what I read in the Bible is God made two genders, male and female. And um, the liberals decided they'd make more. <laughs> so they're going to create out of nothing that which doesn't exist. Are they playing God by doing it? Yeah, that's for you to decide. Anyway, God expects the men to be the leaders in the household. And in society in general. That's what he expects. That's the way he designed it. He put the man in the garden over it to secure it, to guard, and to protect. That's what he was put in the garden to do. The masculine and feminine normally portray the active and passive parts of the human nature. Okay? That's normally what they do. It's not saying that men can't be be effeminate. It's not saying that women women can't be more masculine. It's not saying that at all. It's just saying that this, this they normally portray, and it goes back millennia, centuries and millennia, that um, usually it's the active. The men are supposed to be the aggressors, and the women are supposed to be more passive. Now, what's this pointing out when it comes to a sacrifice? Jesus actively was headed to the cross. Okay? He knew where he was going. He knew what he was facing. He actively went to the cross. And it says there in that last week, he, he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. Now, I want to I see Jesus with his face like a flint. So that's one of the replays I want to get. When he's headed there, you can see that he's, he's got to be serious. He's got to be solemn. He knows what's getting ready to happen. He knows what he is doing, so he is actively pursuing the plan of God for his life. But then when he got there, he submitted to the trials. 
He submitted to the cross. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. And it wasn't that Jesus was both male and female, but what it represented was the active and passive nature of all of humanity. So God will not be left, though, without a leader, such as Deborah the judge. What happens when the men don't show up? That's one of the saddest parts of the scripture to me because the Jews always seemed to be such warriors and fighters. And In the period of the judges leading up to the first king named Saul, you find that they became cowards and they refused to go into battle one time. Deborah became a judge because the men didn't step up. And Deborah became the judge and then they were getting ready to fight a battle and one of the chief warriors said, unless you go with us, we're not going. And I thought, what happened to the manhood in the nation of Israel at that point in time? Men are called to be leaders. Are they going to be leaders all the time? No. Are they going to be bad leaders? Yeah. They're going to be bad, but they are still called to take that role in the uh, society. Now, in places where men won't step up and lead, the ladies do. But actually, who gets to bear the greater discipline? The male. Why? They're abrogating their role whenever, and they're sinning more, if you want to talk about uh, greater sin and all that, than the women who step up. We face things all over the, the, the planet trying to teach pastors. We went to um, one area, uh, 50 pastors showed up, 35 of them were women in the former Soviet Union area that we went into. Uh, and where, where, where were the men? That's because most of the men there were drunks. And they, they, they were disqualified. And they didn't show up in the church leadership. When you found a church, we went through one time in Siberia, went to eight churches, I think, that, that um, I don't know if I went to eight or we went to eight or whatever. But went into more than one church with the pastor and a young man with only men in the whole congregation. And the rest were, were ladies. And they were, they were doing what they could do. But in many places, it was the ladies that stepped up. The men are the ones that bear the, the judgment for that because they have not taken the role that God designed them for. Now, the peace offering teaches the teaching the establishment teaches the establishment of peace, thus the doctrine of reconciliation. Now we're going to take a quick look at what is reconciliation. Because reconciliation, the peace offering, so you have burnt offering is propitiation. Gift offering is the perfect gift that is needed. Peace offering teaches reconciliation. Now, propitiation is the Godward side of salvation. Reconciliation is the manward side of salvation. Easiest way to, to remember it. Now, <clears throat> reconciliation is about moving from a position of hostility to a position of peace. We'll let the Bible define it for us. Romans 5, verses 10 and 11. While we were hit, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Reconciliation, uh, it's the, the three words in the Greek are alasso, katalasso, and apokatalasso. It just keeps adding 
prepositions on the front of it. Alasso means to change. To change from one position to another. Cotalasso, to change based on a standard. Because we can change the wrong direction. So this, this is talking about changing in the right direction. And apocotalasso means to change according to a standard and move away from the place that you were. So those are the three usage of the word reconcile. And he says, not only this, we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the reconciliation. So this peace offering is about being reconciled to God. We were enemies and through the offering of the innocent sacrifice, which is a picture of the Messiah, we can be reconciled to God. Peace with God was established for believers through accepting the work of the Messiah. Another great passage on reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. <clears throat> if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Okay? The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God <coughs> who reconciled us to himself uh, <coughs> through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what is your ministry about? No matter what form it takes, reconciliation. Okay, You want to show people how to be reconciled to God. What are some of the biggest problems in, in everywhere? It's, it is a, it's a presence of hostilities and an absence of peace, right? So part of what Christians are to do is be peacemakers. You see why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for there's the kingdom of God? That's what we are called to do. We're to get them reconciled to God, help them reconcile with one another, become one body, the book of Ephesians is all about that. But he says, And he gave us the ministry, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. This, this has a lot of doctrine in it. It's the Old Testament was called atonement. The sins were covered. Now, not, not held against you. But it, they needed to be taken away. And this reconciliation took the problem away. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, there are already believers. Church at Corinth, biggest bunch of wackos ever assembled. Probably not quite, but they're, they're all a mess. And they've already been reconciled to God <laughs> through Christ because they're saved. So this thing is about phase two. Realize you're not at war with God anymore. Be reconciled to God. I mean, if you think about it, what is the biggest battle you'll ever face in this life? Is the fact that you're born as an enemy of God. Okay? That's the big one. Christ solved the problem. So now why can't we walk in it? Well, I mean, that's, that's the test. We should be at peace with God all the time. We want to know what he wants us to do. We want to carry it out. That should be, that's what he means. He made him, and here is our offering. He made him who knew no sin. The bull without defect. The lamb without defect. The goat without defect. To be sin on our behalf. 
the offer put their hands on the uh, offering and imputed their sins. Actually, the word means to lean on the offering, not just to reach over and touch, but to actually lean on. It's a picture of imputation. And he says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, peace with God was established for believers through accepting the work of the Messiah. And as an ongoing walk with Christ, we're able to experience that. The gospel contains the good news that Jesus the Messiah established the potential for peace with God for all of humanity. Ephesians 2, verses 15 to 22 He says, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that's another word for hostility, okay? He took care of this problem that we all have. We're at odds with God because we're born in Adam. He took care of it, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. See, sin had to be defined so we'd know what Christ paid for on the cross, right? Where there's no law, sin is not imputed. So sin had to be defined. So that's part of why it was written down in the law. <clears throat> and he says that he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and those who were near. Those who were near were the Jews. <clears throat> those who were far away was the Gentiles. And Jesus preached peace, how to have peace with God to to everybody. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. And you are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole body being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the gospel (coughs) contains the good news that Jesus the Messiah established the potential for peace with God for all of humanity. Now, (coughs) here's an interesting passage. Colossians 1, (coughs) in verse 13, the entire creation needed to be reconciled to God. We're going to cover a verse today that Lewis Berry Schaefer wouldn't touch, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. We're going to take a look at it. And we're just going to let it talk to us a little bit here. He says, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness. Actually, it's exousia. It's the authority of darkness. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom, the Son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 19 in Schaefer's Systematic Theology. It's one of the proof texts of the pre-incarnate deity of Jesus Christ. Okay, That he was God who became man, is what another way of saying that. Pre-incarnate deity of Jesus Christ. He wasn't a man who became God. That's evolutionary theory, Hinduism, and all that other stuff. He's God who became man. And these are the verses, one of the verses that he quotes to show that. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, often a picture of the angelic creation. All things have been created by him and for him, for him. things visible, things invisible. And he is before all things. Okay? He is the high priest. He is in charge of the whole thing. And in him all things hold together. So how does the earth stay in one place? How do we stay in one place? <laughs> all our bodies are falling apart. He told us it was going to happen. See? But it, he says, in him all things hold together. He's also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Okay? Isn't that a great picture of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is? He's God in the flesh. He created things. As the second person of the Godhead, he was involved in the creation of all of these things. And it says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Now verse 20 is the one that Schaefer left out. Interestingly enough, not in his systematic theology. Because what it does is open up a rabbit hole that people don't want to go down because their systematic theology they think it's already set and they don't want it stretched. And that's my opinion from studying this for 40 years almost. All What are the all things? Context has to determine all things. What are the all things? Visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things created by him and for him. All things is... Truly, all things. It includes the angelic creation. Does it not? Now, the question about reconcile, the definition of reconcile is to move from a position of hostility to a position of peace. To me, this says very plainly that all of the angelic creation was at odds with God at one point in time. So, I had in that angelic conflict book I have not and all the more reasons in there I think all the angels fell and a third and a third of them chose to stay with Satan and two thirds chose to go with God in effect they got saved okay why this is one this is the main verse right here to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth, in case we missed it, or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If you keep in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which I have proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. Why do you think there are things that angels long to look into? 
But I'm, I'm saying, they don't know everything. Why are they so interested in us? Because I believe fully we are the test case for the appeal that Satan made. And we know, we can establish clearly that Satan had, that Satan appealed the sentence. If we go back into eternity past, okay, I think it all happened in a gap in between original creation and restoration, which is Genesis 1, and there's this gap in there. Time is not measured then as we know time. Because the restoration, time didn't begin till the restoration. There was evening and morning, day one. Here is where Satan and his angels fell. Now when he fell, what happened? His habitat was judged. Just like when God destroys nations and things, and he judged their habitat frequently, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, So he judged it. But then it was... It was cased in ice or whatever, and he had to thaw it out and redo it. Job 38.7 And the angels shouted for joy when he did. Why? What if they all fell? God says, and I think Satan thought he'd won. I really think he thought he'd won the battle. And God said, nah, watch this. This is the way I'm omniscient. I've known about this since the beginning. I knew what you were going to do. I knew that uh, you were put in, in the throne room of God. You're the anointed cherub that covered. I knew you were going to fall. Sin was found in you, and you had spread your lie to all of the angelic creation. And so he said, but I'm going to give you a chance. I declared you guilty. I made a lake of fire for you. Matthew 25:41. But he's not yet in the lake of fire, is he? Why is Jesus called our defense attorney? Advocate in 1 John chapter 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is our defense attorney. Now, he gave us... What happened was, there was a trial. There had to be. There was a verdict declared. Had to be. But no execution of the sentence. Until when? After the millennium. We're in the middle. We're in the middle. So I I believe that we're in the middle to, to provide the other witnesses needed to convict a murderer. Because if all the angels fell, none of them were qualified to be a witness. But he needed a second or third witness to convict a murderer by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Shall every fact be confirmed. And so what did he do? He made the intelligent monkeys. That's what Satan called us. And he's twisted it around and written his own books and said that's why he rebelled to begin with. Because God made those intelligent monkeys and offered them godhood and Satan just couldn't take that. So... Where from? Urantia book. It's an occult Bible. So that's that's his part of his distorted argument that, that he offers. In any event, reconciliation is about reconciling all things to himself. You find in other passages, Romans 8, the whole creation groans awaiting the unveiling of the sons of God. I mean, there are many passages that go with it. 
Now, verse 2. I've gone down enough of a rabbit trail, so we've got to get back to Leviticus. It says in verse 2, And he shall lay, this is the word samak, this is a, a little s, S-A-M-A-K, samak, and it is a word that means to lean on. So again, this is the word showing imputation. He shall lay his hand, or lean, on, lean his hand, on the head of his offering, and slay, this is the word shakat, S-H-A-C-H-A-T, shakat, which is the word for uh, sacrifice, interesting word, used 81 times, and <clears throat> first usage, I, I loved going through the book of Genesis. And teaching that, I did it a long time ago back in Bartlesville in the 80s and went through the whole book of Genesis. And it was, it was beautiful to watch the flow of things because Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's also the book of first usages of the words, the Hebrew words. So you look at what are the first usages of the words and that establishes the context for later on in the Bible. This word shaka was first used in Genesis 22.10. When Abraham went to sacrifice, Shachat, Isaac. Now, <laughs> if if any of these Jews uh, <laughs> had their uh, had their heads out <laughs> for a period of time, they might have thought, I heard that word back when he's talking about Abraham sacrificing Isaac and the Lord stopping him. This is a picture of a of a son of a truly innocent victim that was getting ready to be sacrificed. Now, <clears throat> this if, if you're a Jew, and I would think the priest would know this, if anybody would, and I would think that they would pass this on to the, to the, to the Jewish people. He says, You shall slaughter it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood around on the altar. Okay? So, what is the doorway of the tent of meeting? We've went through the tabernacle and spent a good deal of time on that. And when you go into the outer court, the outer court's like this. You come right inside and there's the bronze altar right inside the door. Then there's the bronze laver and then there's the tabernacle proper on the inside with the holy place and the holy of holies. But this is called the doorway of the tent of the meeting. If you want to get into here where all the good stuff is, you got to stop here. See, the picture of the whole, the whole thing is a picture of phase one, phase two, and the Holy of Holies, phase three. Phase one, phase two, phase three. And it's saying you gotta, you got to stop where the sacrifice is right there at the door of the tent of the meeting. So the peace offering is another picture of the sins of the offeror being imputed to the innocent sacrifice. The doorway of the tent of the meeting confronts anyone with the issue of an innocent sacrifice to be permitted to proceed any farther, like into the reaches of the tabernacle. So the Gentiles, it's off limits to them at this point in time. But when the Jews came in, look at them right there, is a raised altar. 
they couldn't see down into it. It was on a mound. The priests could see down into it, but they couldn't see down into the altar proper. But there was a sacrifice because they knew from the smell and the burning of the animals, they knew what it what it was for. Now, <clears throat> the fat is the sacrifice, Leviticus 3.3. 3. And from the sacrifice of the peace offerings, he shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. Fat's picture of prosperity in Scripture. And I'm glad you can tell I'm quite prosperous. I'm carrying around a little extra little extra stuff there. And so uh, uh, there was <laughs> there was uh, a lady back went with uh, VMI on a mission trip a long time ago. And she was a little heavier than than normal and she went in this this place in Africa and these women were going you're so fat and of course that was kind of a oh no <laughs> no no type of moment they're paying her a compliment because they knew that that fat according to the Old Testament was a picture of prosperity so they they weren't it wasn't a put down like it would be in the U.S. of A. It was a compliment that they they were paying to them. I was in Vietnam one time, and this little lady comes up to me, rubs my stomach, and goes, Buddha. <laughs> that wasn't a compliment. <laughs> oh, gosh. I deserve that. Anyway, <clears throat> in verse 4, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver which he shall remove from the kidneys. Now, when you start looking at the internal organs, the, the bowels, the kidneys, and th- things like that, these are about emotions. Because when they start talking about emotions, oftentimes when some of the emotions that are mentioned are actually the words for these internal organs here. And as, as we know, when our emotions get a little too much, when our emotions get a little too much, then then they uh, we can we can hurt on the inside, right? I mean, it can can mess us up, upset our stomach, upset our our normal elimination of waste. It can do all kinds of things like that. And so when you see the <coughs> internal organs here, it's saying uh, it, it's it's telling them that they're going to have put aside their emotions to sacrifice this innocent victim. Because justice has to be served. Now that's quite a statement. Then Aaron's son shall offer it up in smoke on the altar and on the burnt offering, which is on the wood that is on the fire. It's an offering by fire. See that phrase? Of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Pleasing sacrifice, that's what he wants. Now the offerer kill the innocent victim showing the personal nature of our salvation. You know, for God so loved the world, at times we think about the world and we think about the corporate nature of it, and yet these offerings said, no, this is about you as an individual, as a person. Because you're not saved by the society. You're saved by your personal belief in Jesus Christ. You didn't take all the blood, Jesus said, sprinkle, that, that he shed. <coughs> But the sprinkling is the fact that there's part of it for you. There was part of it for you. The priest then placed the peace offering on top of the burn offering. 
Now, when we, if once we get a little farther, you find out the first thing they did every morning was offer up a burnt offering. Okay, and it took a while to uh, to cook it all, and so they would set this peace offering on top of the burnt offering that had already burned down some. So when the priest went to start the fire, they had to start the fire, get it hot, offer up a burn offering, and then on top of that went this peace offering. Which is basically saying God's righteousness and justice had to be propitiated for true peace to be able to occur. Point is to two things here at the same time. That's why it said set it on top of the burn offering that is there. Verse 5, but if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord is from the flock, he shall offer it, male or female, without defect. Now, an offering from the sheep could also be male or female, denoting both the active and passing, passive sides of the work of Messiah. And it says if he's going to offer a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it, before the Lord, literally before the face of the Lord. Once again, you're presenting it to him. He's the one that makes the ultimate determination. And he shall lay, this is the same word as lean, we just saw earlier, his hand on the head of his offering, slay it before the tent of meeting, and Aaron's sons shall sprinkle the blood around on the altar. So again, it shows the imputation and the offer sins to the innocent sacrifice, the sprinkling of blood also shows the issue of atonement for the offerer's sins. And from the sacrifice of peace offerings, he shall bring it as an offering by fire to the Lord. Its fat, the entire fat tail, which he shall remove close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails. And the two kidneys, with the fat that's on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. So those internal organs are supposed to be burned up. Now, <clears throat> I never cared a whole lot for internal organs myself. Um, some people like liver of all kinds, and me and liver don't get along. One of the worst things that ever happened one time is Helen was trying to get Jennifer to eat liver, and she's three years old and we're in Houston, Texas in the restaurant and it looks like chicken fried steak and I walk by and I see Jennifer how good this is daddy eats it I popped that in my mouth <laughs> Helen started laughing <laughs> she knew what it was I had no clue what it was until it first touched my palate and then it was two bites and a swallow is <laughs> what it was <laughs> And it's really hard to encourage your kid to eat something that you just absolutely detest. <laughs> just, oh, anyway. <clears throat> the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as food. This is the word lechem. Lechem is the word for bread. I.e., it's bread for the Lord. Interesting, interesting thing that, that we're supposed to offer him uh, some bread, an offering by fire to the Lord. So his bread is not bread as we know it. Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. So God gave his best to humanity 
not only fitting for us to give our best back to him. The fat, as it is seen, is viewed as prosperity. We're to take from what God has given us and give a portion back to him. Is he not gracious or what? We wouldn't have anything without him. And he says, I just want part of it back. I want part of it back to continue the ministry that is that is going on, which is to sustain the priests, take care of them and their families, so they don't have to do anything else. Now that basically is what, what he's saying. Now, <clears throat> the verse 12, we've seen the herd, then we've seen the flock, and now we see the goats. Moreover, if his offering is a goat. This is a feminine singular of the word as, E-Z. And it's hard to determine whether if he's talking about a she-goat or not. Because the noun for goat is, is a feminine. And I can't find where it is distinguished between using a masculine for this term or a feminine. Normally, what you find with is, normally that's a masculine noun, just by its very structure. And it would be for a, um, it, if you're going to turn it into a pure um, feminine, it would be aza, like ish, the word for man, and isha. The ah makes it a, a feminine ending. And so the word is here is inherently a feminine noun, but it's hard to tell. Some places the New American Standard and the King James translate it translates to the she-goats. But <clears throat> it's a goat. So can it be a male or female? Looks like maybe it can. Uh, he says, He shall offer it before the face of the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on its head, slay it before the tent of meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. And from it he shall present his offering as an offering by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails, all the fat that's on the entrails. This is the same type of procedure. Two kidneys, fat on them, which is on the loins, lobe of the liver, he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall offer them up and smoke on the altar as lechem, an offering by fire for a soothing aroma. And notice that last phrase, all fat is the Lord's. Interesting. I, he put them on a lean meat diet, didn't he? But they're not eating these particular offerings. But he said, the prosperity goes to, to the Lord. Now, goats were plentiful in Israel. They had several different kinds of, of goats. The ones that are there now are the big uh, fluffy tail, the, the big big tail, what do they call them? Um, they had a full tail. The goats we find running around here, a lot of them have not much tail at all. But these are, they've got mountain goats and several different kinds there. They're plentiful in, they're plentiful in those regions of the world. So here they are out in the desert, and it's not like that they, you know, did they bring a whole flock of goats? They did, actually, coming out of Egypt. But <clears throat> goats were plentiful in Israel. They'd always been around the Jews for a long time. One goat got a pass on the Day of Atonement called the scapegoat. Leviticus 16, verses 8 to 10. It says, And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. Now, how did he go about casting lots, flipping a coin type of thing? One lot for the Lord... 
and the other lot for the scapegoat. And that is a Azazel, not the Ez that we just found here. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. So here's a goat as a peace offering. Later on we'll find it can be offered as a sin offering. And on the Day of Atonement, there were two goats. And they basically flipped to see which goat was going to die and which goat was going to be set free. He says, The goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. So that is a picture of, of being set free. <clears throat> so this is still another option for the peace offerings, although birds were not included in this in this offering. Uh, you ask a question, Chloe, today about uh, the priest is the one that wrung the head off of the uh, the bird in the uh, burnt offering, and uh, it, it looks like it has to do with the fact that priests needed offerings too. Priests didn't bring a offering for themselves, and so they would take the bird offerings, and that would become their offering because all the priests were sinners as well. They needed to do something of that nature. Anyway, that's probably not the full explanation, but maybe get started on it. So this is still another option for the peace offering, so birds were not included. It's designed to show the cost of reconciliation or peace. Reconciliation means to make peace where there's hostility. And it's part of why peacemakers are blessed. Because it's a little bit of work. Blessed are the peacemakers. Some elements of peace. These are <clears throat> great passages. And sometimes we don't, don't realize that um, when we see the word reconciliation or see the word peace, how close those words are interrelated with each other. Reconciliation is the act of change. Okay, That word, peace is the result of it. So, <clears throat> um, some elements of peace. Uh, spiritual peace is available to believers. Only in Christ can peace be found. You can look these verses up for yourself. They're really neat verses, but I, I rabbit trail too much and I'm running out of time. Peace is the intended result of being declared righteous. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the picture of the burnt offering. The burning first, the peace offering set on top of it. He says, His righteousness and justice had to be satisfied for reconciliation to occur. One came before the other one. The experience peace requires a mindset on the spirit. Hmm. You want to experience? See, you're at peace with God as a believer. Do you have this peace all the time? Most of us don't, quite honestly. But it is something that we can have. Growing faith in the God of hope is what fills us with peace. In Romans 15:13, Faith grows by becoming more and more dependent on our God for everything. This, as the verse says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, see, that's a result. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, 
shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's a condition there to experiencing this peace in phase two. How how, how can we live that way where the things of this world don't don't bother us and bother us dramatically? We're called to let Christ's peace rule in in our hearts. As a Christian, what makes him happy? When I fear not. No matter what it is. Like Paul, I get along with the little. I can get along with a lot. Do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that peace that passes all comprehension. Because the world's going to tell you you shouldn't have any peace in these circumstances. And yet, all of us have been through circumstances where we have, found, we have seen the peace of God just settle in in our life. And we're going, okay. You know, and in effect, <laughs> how about Jesus the night before the cross? And he looks at Judas and says, go do what you got to do. Whoa. Talk about somebody being at peace. Because he knew what he was getting ready to do. And that was going to trigger a series of events that was going to put him on the cross. And just the way he said it, because you can, you can see it better in the Greek than you can ever explain it in English. Just the way he said it, it's, he's total total peace with it. Perfect calm. We're called to be at peace when the Lord returns. <clears throat> this is the last words Peter writes. Beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. Now, that, that's quite an exhortation for all of us. When the Lord comes back, how do we want to be found? Running around with our, like a chicken with our heads off? Totally frustrated by the world and everything in the world. He says, no, I want to find you in peace. I want you living the peace that I've already given you at salvation. And that, that, that ends up with a verse growing the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> verse 17, it's a perpetual statute. Throughout your generations and all your dwellings, you shall not eat any fat or any blood. Now, my grandmother was a literalist when it came to not eating any blood. She could absolutely take a four-pound roast and turn it into a two-pound roast just to be sure that she had cooked all of the possible blood out of that thing. And I'm still not sure that a medium-rare steak would violate this even the spirit of this command. But <clears throat> remember that all fat is the Lord's, so we're not to keep what he claims is his. He said, this is mine. Okay, So if he says, this is mine... The blood is a picture of the sacrifice, so all blood is to be used portraying unlimited atonement through the blood of Jesus Christ. The literal blood of the sacrifice could not save. Going all the way back to this picture, can't save. Did the literal blood of Jesus Christ, I believe it needed to be shed in order to take care of the, the issue of sin and needed to have something that was so literally visible to people that they could see that, yeah, the blood of Messiah was was involved. But Messiah's blood's what brought us near. It's not just the physical blood that he shed, it's the, it's the spiritual blood that he shed. Because it's 
it's spiritual and physical. <clears throat> His blood cleanses us to serve. Again, these passages you can look up this week. They're great passages to look up. Uh, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, cleanse our conscience, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We just need a sprinkle of it to be saved. That's it. See that? Notice that's what they did. Sprinkled a little bit on the altar to say that that sacrifice was personal for the offer or his blood is what redeemed us first peter one and his blood is what released us from the penalty for sins revelation chapter one uh, <clears throat> john to the seven churches that are in asia grace to you and peace from him who is who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's the payment. So the sins are no longer an issue. They were an issue and they were covered till he died spiritually and physically on the cross to pay for our sins. And now they're not an issue in salvation at all. Now, they're not an issue means somebody had to pay for them. Justice of God had to be satisfied. Portrayed in all the offerings, and it was satisfied by him on the cross. So it was an issue, in a sense, until he did it. But now he's done it. So it's not an issue at all in salvation anymore. Anyway, don't eat fat or the blood, um, as, I, as, as it says. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love, your mercy, your grace, all your blessings, all your tests. Father, thank you for this, these beautiful pictures that we see in these sacrifices that uh, you gave to your people Israel. And Father, that, uh, that they might actually see that an innocent sacrifice had to take their place to pay for their sins. Father, I, I pray more and more of your people, the, the Jews, We'll come to see that. Uh, it'll be difficult and more difficult in these last days, but nothing's impossible with you. We pray for their salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.